In 2023, we celebrated our third anniversary with Yvette Lisa Nulovo's debut short story collection, Drinking from Graveyard Wells. Her book captivated us as she worked magic, death, and time travel into stories that explain themes of family, citizenship, and autonomy. Yvette's collection grapples with her country's future with stories that reflect Zimbabwe's past under the ruling thumb of the former dictator Mugabe. We talk with Novo about the women in her stories being able to harness power and death, gentrification, and the sacrifices made when giving up home for citizenship in another country. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we are joined by our April anniversary book of the month author. Um, She is amazing. The book is amazing. We can't wait for you to get into it. Yes. And we're so happy that we chose this for April because I think this is a combination of me and Veronica's favorite genres yes we got a little social horror uh yeah a little spec fic in there some sci-fi for denny she loves all of that good stuff yes and uh yeah i don't live in the i don't i don't live in the real world i live in some somewhere else (laughs) (laughs) i love that (laughs) yvette lisa nulovo is a zimbabwean storyteller Her debut short story collection, Drinking from Graveyard Wells from University Press of Kentucky, was selected for the 2021 UPK New Poetry and Prose Series. She is pursuing her MFA at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she teaches in the writing program. She has taught at Clarion West Writers Workshop online and earned her BA at Cornell University. Her work has been supported by fellowships from the Tin House Workshop, Bread Loaf Writers Workshop, and the New York State Summer Writers Institute. Um, Yvette, thank you so much for joining us on this show. We're so excited to talk about your book. This is really difficult for us. Most of the time we're talking to people and their books had just come out, but your book does not come out. We're, we're actually talking in March, y'all. Her book drops tomorrow for the whole world to see. OMG. Uh, So this is a very special moment to be able to talk to you on the brink of everybody knowing your name. Um, So just thank you so much for joining us. Um, But before we start gushing all over your book, um, we are going to just warm up those conversation bones with you and start off with some some yeah, questions some, some fun questions so while we're trying to do your research I always um like to see you know what's going on what's happening in your life you know just minor stuff 
So we found out that you have a YouTube channel. When is it coming back? Uh oh. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> ah, she wasn't ready for that one. Yeah. <laughs> like, baby, baby event is there, you know? Like, spit, spitting out poems, uh, spitting the, the truth, educating so funny and embarrassing at the same time. No. So, yeah, I think I had that YouTube, I think, when I was a teenager and also, um, a little bit in undergrad so I was doing spoken word poetry uh very much into the spoken word scene uh and I haven't done spoken word poetry in so long now but yeah maybe I should you should get back into it but I do have a TikTok now so I think that's kind of like YouTube but shorter <laughs> yeah, yeah that's so funny that you found that I, sh I should go delete those videos <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's uh that's a time capsule right there no. for everybody to go back and look at. Please don't. <laughs> I don't know. I, I loved it. I'm like, oh my god, this is the beginnings. <laughs> <laughs> um, when thinking of ancestors, who or what mm. comes to mind? Mm. Yeah, I think of the writers that came before me, and also the women that came before me. I think is coming from a lineage of uh you know, women who are, you know, doing the thing and, you know, passing on traditions and, you know, keeping everybody safe. So I think I think a lot about the women in my family and, uh, you know, what they have done for, you know, for the present. Mm -hmm. What reminds you of Zimbabwe? Mm, uh, Roy Boy's tea. <laughs> it's very it's very uh special there and there's a lot of like debates about not putting milk so you see twitter fights where they say oh, somebody put milk in the rooibos tea <laughs> you know off with their head there. <laughs> uh, i'm very protective of rooibos tea like i went to um a cafe recently um out here and they did have milk and uh boba in the rooibos and i was like hmm my <laughs> my southern african zimbabwean self is coming out but i actually enjoyed the rooibos boba tea so i'm like shit maybe i need to try that <laughs> yeah I do but i've never admitted to anyone back home <laughs> <laughs> yes this is the time where they need to like put the volume down i yeah. do love the tea um i it's i like to drink tea before i loved coffee and that tea is good. So do you just drink it straight? Yeah, I just drink it straight. Like make sure like the red can show up in the class, that red, uh, in the yes. class, red color. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is also controversial. Do you like it hot or like iced? Hot. Anybody <laughs> 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 here, you say cold. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, again, I'm on the other side because I don't know, I, may, I make up rules, but yeah. <laughs> um, this is a question from Veronica. You have the cutest outfits. What are you planning to wear tomorrow when your book is finally out in the world for everyone to read? Oh, thank you so much. Actually, this was the crisis today. So my sister came. Uh, she just arrived in America and we went to the mall to find an outfit because, um, you know, I'd been, you know, so stressed out and busy that I didn't have the chance to probably 
uh, plan out an outfit. So we kind of had a girl time today to look for an outfit. But I do have earrings that are shaped like my book cover. So that's exciting that I got oh, those earrings in time. That's so cute. <laughs> the whole the whole book or just the the pic? The yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can show you. They're like right here. <laughs> I know the listeners will not be able to see, but. Uh, oh, that is so cute. <laughs> They're the actual cover for the book. Yeah. That is, that is so cute. Oh, yeah, girl, you might have to sell that on your on your website. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Get a cop get a uh get a copy of the book with a pair of earrings. Yes. There you go. There you go. What has the, your favorite place that you have traveled to? Mm, I think Puerto Rico. I just loved it because I haven't been, you know, back home uh, in five years now. And when I went to Puerto Rico, it felt very much like home for me. Um, So I think just being there, you know, I, I kind of felt grounded. I felt the culture and I felt like I was I was back in Zimbabwe. So I think that has been like my favorite place um, in, I guess, like the USA so far. Where did you go to visit in Puerto Rico? Yeah, uh, San Juan and Old San Juan. And then we did the rainforest, uh, El Yunque, which was really good. Uh, got lost and muddy, but it was really beautiful. <laughs> Puerto Rico is definitely lovely. I did that for my, my 33rd birthday. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful country. <laughs> so before we begin, um, we would like you to tell, you know, our listeners what your book is about and like just a quick synopsis of what what your debut novel mm-hmm. is yeah uh so drinking from graveyard wells is a genre bending collection that blurs the lines between realism social horror fantasy some afro surrealism and afro futurism in there um to tell the story of uh black women vengeful spirits uh, and monsters taking on the patriarchy and capitalism. And a lot of it explores the lives of Zimbabwean mi- women uh, living under the Mugabe dictatorship, um, which is uh, a-, a brutal, long dictatorship that uh, ended in 2017, but was replaced by another <laughs> dictatorship. So those stories kind of like use social horror and elements of the absurd to uh, explore what it is like to be um, a woman under uh, that system and under capitalism and patriarchy in general. Mm. Yeah, this book is so good. Thank you. <laughs> this, this book is so good. Um, I think I I love short stories. Veronica knows that. Um, and I'm so happy that this is what we chose for our anniversary. Um mm. Because I think it, like we told you earlier, it encapsulates like the stuff that we really love in literature. Mm-hmm. You mm. know, we just don't like to read, you know, just for, of course, there is that part of pleasure, but I think we read to further educate ourselves. So like how big the world is and how maybe all of our experiences a little bit different, but also the same. And, you mm. know, like it humanizes people and- mm it's like a window to everybody's life. Mm. But Mm. the themes in your book are wonderful. We love these kinds of things around here. Um, You made it into a way where um, it's digestible. It's funny. It's sad. But then, you know, every time you finish a story, you're like, huh, I wish there was more, (laughs) first of all. (laughs) But it it was a wonderful experience. So we 
start, you know, diving into the book. Um, to me, women were, you know, the highlight of these stories. Um, mm-hmm. It is their lived experiences that these stories were attached to. How important that your stories mostly center on these extraordinary pillars of Zimbabwean life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I mostly have been writing in uh, Afro-Sulism, which uh, explores the you know absurdity of being a Black person uh, in the world uh, in general. I think um, Get Out is, I think, like, is the best example of Afro-Sulism, where Jordan Peele is using the sunken place to explore um, the legacy of racism and slavery in America. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was using that space to explore the absurdity of being uh, a woman, um, especially under uh, a brutal uh, dictatorship. So uh, a lot of the stories kind of, you know, deal with that. Um, I have one story where uh, the woman is uh, a ghost who's speaking from beyond the grave and kind of like exploring, you know, the question of who has ownership of Black women's bodies, even in death. So a lot of the stories um, really like capture the experiences of uh, of women. I'm glad that you brought that up because that comes to my my next question because um when your book was sent to us to you know just to be considered as a, you know as a galley we're looking at it and the very first line in the back cover it said even in death who has ownership over black women's body and it hooked us immediately because I was like oh okay I want to know what this book is about right and it really when upon reading it it took me to Zora Neale Hurston, their eyes were watching God and uh, the main character, Janie, her grandmother is having a conversation in the very beginning about where women's place is. And she basically tells her that women are the mule of the world. And so you touch on the many aspects of how womanhood is stripped away throughout this entire uh, collection. What do you wanna say about the autonomy within these stories about not just the the black woman's body but just the black body in general and what it means to have ownership of self and then have someone take it away Mm, yeah um so i'm just thinking of one of the stories in um the collection which is uh red cloth white giraffe um and in that story i explore um uh, the tradition of the bride price or uh, dowry where um when a woman gets married she um her husband um has to pay a certain amount uh to her family uh, in order for that uh that marriage um to happen and so what happens a lot uh is that some of these uh, because of capitalism some of the the prices of the you know the dowry the bride price the lobola are very exorbitant that people cannot afford them so a lot of people pay in installments and what happens when a woman you know dies before the the husband finishes paying the installments is that uh, her family will not bury her will refuse to bury her until all of that money is paid so that story explores that that um these families kind of like have an embargo over her body until that money is paid and I explore you know what does that mean you cannot you know even move on to the afterlife because a man is you know paying a certain amount of money for you and you know, families do do this where somebody's not buried for months because their their bride price isn't uh, isn't uh, complete. Mm-hmm. So you know that story uh, is you know from the perspective of this dead character, and she's a ghost who's you know looking at you know the family uh, you know doing all these things and the husband trying to find the money to 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 you know to pay. So you know thinking about that that 
you know, even in death, um, this woman does not have uh, autonomy over her own body. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as the story progresses, she does kind of rebel against this, uh, rebel against the system and, you know, kind of refuses to partake in it. Um, so I think the story I was, you know, both talking about the lack of autonomy and also uh, women getting their uh, their a uh, agency and power through uh, through magic. And yeah, the ghost does, you know, kind of get her revenge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the end. Yeah, I, I, I really, truly love all the revenge moments within this book. I'm just curious to know when you sat down to write this this particular collection which story came first for you because I know some of them came at different times they appeared at different places as most short stories work but when you were like okay I want this one to be included which one did you automatically know like this got to be in there yeah definitely home became a thing with thorns um that's one oh, that I wrote God. later <laughs> Yeah. So in that story, I'm exploring like the surreal experiences of being an, Im an immigrant. Um, and so in this world, immigrants have to give up something that they love in order to become a citizen, in order to be allowed to stay. So you can give up body parts, you can give up family members, recipes, traditions, your memories uh, and different things. Um, and that was just exploring, you know, my own experiences, you know, as a Zimbabwean living in America. And I have, you know, relatives that live in uh, South Africa where there's a lot of xenophobia and Afrophobia. So like xenophobia that's targeted at black immigrants um, specifically. So, you know, thinking about that surreal experience of how much immigrants give up, give up your language, give up your family in order to kind of get a little semblance of, of safety um, and just... Yeah, using horror to, you know, the horror of giving up a body part to to explore that uh, that experience. I think what makes this conversation the most difficult for me is because um, your book is about to come out and mm. therefore we cannot have any spoilers because yeah. <laughs> let me tell y'all, I would love to talk yes. to anybody who has put their eyes to this book because of how much uh of in depth that you go into when you're talking about these different class systems and what it is to be an immigrant and coming into another country and becoming a citizen which we'll touch on a little bit later but that particular story that you just mentioned is my favorite in the entire they're all good but that one that one has a special place in my heart that one is really good yeah that I, that I felt because I'm an immigrant you know so that is like a that's a daily that's daily life yeah. um, you know in in a much grandiose and palatable way for me to to read um I have a bunch of favorite stories even like you know even even the like the shorter stories I'm like what is happening did they just happen <laughs> but anyway you you know I can digress very easily um you talked about neo-colonialism gentrification erasure patriarchy and poverty in these short stories you know those are some of the greater themes that you've dabbled on and there's a lot more packed in this in this book um this makes people for me evaluate themselves and their lives that they're creating and the people that they are affecting what conversations do you wish um that people would have while reading this or after reading your work Mm, oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think specifically, you know, back home for um for Zimbabweans, I think kind of 
interrogating um, kind of like the patriarchal traditions. So for example, with the Lobola. So, you know, when people always ask me, you know, what is my stance on, you know, dowry and bride price and things like that, I would say, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's just when there are these uh, capitalist greed and patriarchy behind it that, you know, it becomes bad because, uh, you know, way back when, back in the day, it wasn't a bad tradition. The dowry was just a small gift of thank you to the family. So you'd bring beer, you know, you'd bring a bag of maize as a small thank you, a small token of appreciation. But I think with, you know, the modern society that we live in, it has become this capitalist thing where you have to pay thousands of dollars in dowry. So kind of interrogating, uh, you know, our, our traditions and uh, how we can, you know, diverse from making traditions exploitative, I think. Um, and, you know, seeing how women can suffer under some of these traditions, I think. So kind of stirring up those conversations, also stirring up conversations about the political systems. Mm -hmm. um, one of the stories in, um, in the collection um, is about an immortal leader who um, does not leave the seat of power. So he's in power forever. And mm -hmm. I use that to explore, you know, kind of like what was the absurd experience of living under a dictatorship? Um, because living under the Mugabe dictatorship, um, he was, uh, I think, 96 um, and still, uh, still a president. And, you know, and uh, I grew up thinking that he would never die. I grew up thinking that he was immortal because he'd been around for so long. He was this really larger than life figure. Uh, and that does something to you, you know. And so even when he did pass away, I didn't believe it at first mm. I, I was like no this man is immortal that cannot happen so using something like immortality to kind of explore the absurdity of living under uh, an authoritarian regime and uh how we can use things like magic fables and fairy tales to really interrogate uh real world uh real world systems so conversations about the politics back home and and women and uh patriarchy is really important to me it really um hit home for me in in terms of looking at it from the broader scheme of the when you're talking about the african diaspora in terms mm -hmm. of uh african americans who were once enslaved people mm -hmm. right and i was talking to denny today about you know different traditions and talking about the the dowry and things like that and, and you know what the rings mean what the diamonds mean for you and things of that nature and it made me think about like, okay, well, you have this culture that does this thing and another culture that does a thing. And then when you're talking about enslaved Black people not being allowed to enter into a marriage that sometimes they had to take a partner in secret and mm -hmm. how those things went. So there is a whole nother system that is built into that and and then adopting this western idea of like now you got to give a ring and ask mm -hmm. the dad for the hand in marriage or the mom or whatever and and taking on something that never was meant for us mm -hmm. and and then taking it on in a in a means of what it means for us to internalize those things of what mm -hmm. is the cost of being with someone forever and that transactional thing or is it like a real thing and all of those things that can be weighed and what you were touching on in this conversation um when we when we started vulgar it was all with the you know with well intentions of reading uh literature written by people that look like us right and 
one thing that I've realized for myself that in these interviews, when we talk about well-known authors, such as Octavia E. Butler, who comes to mind when I'm reading your your work, mm-hmm. um, her work was something that I never cracked open, never even considered, didn't even know about until we started doing what it is that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so in the scope of sci-fi and um written by black people into the future who were the writers that who were the writers when you when you're looking at sci-fi and things like that who were the writers that helped show you that you too can exist in this space between time and death and these stories that you have written for your for for us to to read yeah and you know thank you so much for that question because I didn't think that I and people like me could work in the fantasy sci-fi space um, you know, until I read the works of Leslie Nekarima, she has this gorgeous short story collection, um, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky. And, you know, it's uh, she's a Nigerian author. Um, most of the stories are set in Nigeria. They're Afrofuturists. They're weird. There's, yes. you know, all this stuff happening. And, you know, until I read that, I was like, oh, I can do that. I can play with the myths back home because we have so much so much myth, so much mythology. And I didn't know that I could put that uh, in my work. So reading her work was transformational. Also Nnedi Okofa, who's you know, done a lot of work. The first time that I read An African Girl in Space was uh, her, her Binti trilogy. Um, and and uh, the girl is from a tribe, a Southern African tribe that I'm very familiar with. And so to see that, uh, you know, this girl from the Himpa tribe up in space, I had, you know, never seen that before. And it was you know, such a beautiful moment that, oh, you, we can have that. Um, so just, you know, reading, you know, just seeing yourself in work is so important because, uh, you know, I think a lot about like imagination that, you know, without imagination, you cannot even conceive of, you know, certain things. So to see an African girl, to see a black girl in those spaces is, you know, is so important. And, you know, going back to Afrofuturism, I always say people like Harriet Tubman were Afrofuturists because they could imagine a future where black people were free and because of that imagination they worked towards making that future uh, a possibility so you know afrofuturism comes with imagination imagining you know liberty imagining a different world for black people and once you have that imagination you can have the action to you know to back up that imagination so seeing you know writers like Nnedi Okofa and uh and Leslie Nekarima really you know sparked that interest for me to you know dip my toes into that space and I haven't looked back ever since when did when did you discover sci-fi for what what age Mm -hmm. were you when you were like yeah so you know I I feel like you know sci-fi has like always been around but I'd never really deeply engaged with it like when I was a teenager but then when I got to college then that's the first time that I read Nnedi Okorofa, Leslie Nekarima that's when I was like oh you know black women are writing in the space you can do this. So, you know, that was really transformational. And, you know, a lot of my early stories, you know, I had, and a lot of Black writers talk about this, that a lot of your early stories have, you know, white characters. Some of my stories, you know, were set in England because Zimbabwe is a former British colony. So a lot of the books that we read are by British authors. And so uh, a lot of my stories were set in England. You know, there was snow. I had never seen snow. Zimbabwe pretty much has all year round summer. So I was writing about snow and, you know, I'd never seen that (laughs) growing up in Zimbabwe all my life. And so, yeah, so that's seeing, you know, people like you writing themselves into stories is so important because I don't have to write about snow. 
you know, mm-hmm. I can, I can, I can write about, you know, my own things. And yeah, that's the beauty of reading uh, forebears. And, you um, know, I'm glad that there's this, you know, explosion of, you know, black speculative fiction, Afrofuturism, people rediscovering Octavia Butler, rediscovering all these writers and, mm-hmm. you know, we Octavia Butler needs her flowers. Oh, <laughs> and yes. Finally yes. getting them. <laughs> forever and forever. Because I, I just, we're always so busy, like reading everything. And every time we have somebody on, they're, you know, they're bringing up Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Octavia. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, it's, it's time for me to like sit down and read something. And I read Kindred and my mind was blown. I'm like, what the hell like how is it that this was not a part of anything that I read when I was growing up in yeah, school the canon yeah yeah like <laughs> those those things like even when you're talking about just the black canon in literature was never brought and I went to a predominantly black high school mm-hmm. but we were dealing with teachers who were teaching a curriculum that did not show us at all and it wasn't until I was a junior in high school that I even touched and finding out who Zora Neale Hurston was so you know when you find these these books later in your life and you're like I wish I had known that they existed (laughs) and you know which you know shows why what we're doing is so important to have writers like you who are writing these amazing stories that we want people to know about and you mentioned about, you know, being in, over in Europe and writing about like snow and things like that. <laughs> and it comes to my next question in terms of just America and its relationship to with literature. It can be a very like self-centered one mm-hmm. uh, and it misses out on investing, reading time in stories that have narratives that take readers to a viewpoint centered in another co- country's culture, which you have given us today. A, a different viewpoint so I'm just curious what do you hope that readers will gain from reading books written by authors like yourself mm. that are that are in America mm. I think just you know learning about different people and you know what is going on outside the American context uh, is super important and just you know reading widely you can kind of get to see you know something different and also see like the connections uh you know between uh between people um it's interesting because I run a summer fellowship for black writers called the voodoo not summer fellowship so we provide mentorship and classes for black writers and it's a very diverse uh group of students so uh, last year we had uh, and it's you know it's online so we had students from black students from Europe black students from South America, black students from uh, from uh, America and uh, from the African continent. And so it was so interesting to kind of see their diverse experiences of blackness and also their similarities. And it's always a good conversation between these writers. Um, so, you know, we had a writer from Norway and people were asking, how did you end up in Norway? You know, tell us <laughs> that story, you know, like what are black people doing in Norway? Like we want to know. Um, and then one of uh, the instructors of that year, it was a nonfiction uh, workshop and I uh, sat in on it and he had this like fun kind of icebreaker activity where, and he's, um, he's uh, American and he said, oh, let's write a recipe for Kool-Aid. And so because it was a di- diverse international uh, group, uh, you know, uh, you know, students from uh, from Africa and South, Af- in South America were like, oh, what's Kool-Aid? And then when he explained what Kool-Aid is, they're like, wait, we have that. 
And I was like, oh, wait, you know, I'm from Zimbabwe. So our version of Kool-Aid is Jolly Juice. So I was like, that sounds like Jolly Juice. It was an interesting oh. like, connection moment where it's like, wait, okay, so it's called Kool-Aid in America, Jolly Juice in Zimbabwe, something else in the Caribbean. So it was a fun moment where we were all creating stories around this, you know, this, this product that has different names. So I think, you know, that's what literature can do, that you can see that, oh, we have these similarities between us and, you know, it's not just about the differences, but the connections you can make with people. And I think working with, uh, with voodoo knots and getting this, you know, diverse experience of blackness has really showed me that. I'm, I'm glad you brought up voodoo knots. That's mm-hmm. a question that I'm going to save for later, but I was just curious is when you're having those conversations, has there ever been anything when you're talking to someone from another country that has sparks an idea that you're like, okay, I need to write this down and use it <laughs> in a story. Cause this, this is good. Just from the conversations that you all are having. Yeah. So uh, actually um, one of my uh, co-founders is from Kenya and we plan on uh, co-writing a story about like a magical school where, you know, black students, you know, come. Uh, so that's kind of like in the works and we're kind of co-writing a different, uh, different projects. Uh, but that's one of the things is that you can kind of co-write. And, you know, when we're kind of talking about, you know, different things. So we have this public transportation system in Kenya, it's called Matatu. And it's a different word, you know, in Zimbabwe. So we're like, oh, that's nice. We can have like a matatu. And, you know, because we've kind of experienced, you know, similar things. And it goes between, uh, you know, it can teleport. You know, it doesn't, uh, there are no borders in its ways. And, you know, thinking about those kinds of things, it's been really, really fun kind of getting the Kenyan experience and the Zimbabwean experience and different things thrown in there. So it's like a melting pot of different things. Uh-huh. I've had that so much yes. fun. With with you writing it, it'd probably be really good. <laughs> so, like what you were saying, you know, about your Kool-Aid story, um, your form of storytelling tapped the places in my heart that make me miss home. Mm. I think the same feeling that when you went to Puerto Rico, I think it's like the same feeling when I had when I was reading your book. Because mm. I'm like, you know, I'm Asian. I'm from the Philippines. Zimbabwe is very, very far from where I live. Mm-hmm. But when I was reading your stories, I'm like, oh, this feels like um a story that an auntie or a grandma would tell me, mm-hmm. like, you know, while I'm hanging out with them, making some food. Like, that's mm-hmm. how your stories felt when I was reading it. So thank I'm, you. Yeah. Um, and that's the truth. Cause I, I think I read like an article where like people were saying like, it might be like too preachy or too blunt, like whatever you're writing in your story. But to me, it was comforting and it was familiar. Um, I have recognized that your gift of making these stories concrete on paper is a very important aspect in preserving culture and identity. Um, you have this ability to make, you know, the fantastical humane and vice versa. Um, I know you touched a little bit more, a little bit about this earlier, but can you talk more on how you used Afro surrealism to guide Mm. you into writing, you know, the other parts of your book? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like I mentioned, you know, Afro surrealism really leans into the, you know, the absurdity of just being a black person in this world. Um, so one of the stories, uh, which is the title story drinking from, Graveyard Wells um, explores neocolonialism, gentrification, um, and erasure. 
um, through uh, a neighborhood where houses start disappearing. So the neighborhood gossip wakes up one day and uh, her neighbor's house has disappeared and she's kind of trying to figure out, you know, what happened and every night a new house disappears. And I use that to uh, explore, you know, gentrification and uh, neocolonialism uh, back home. And then they kind of have, you know, theories about why the houses are disappearing uh, in the community. Um, and, you know, I think a lot about, you know, what communities are not heard and listened to, that uh, a whole community can disappear and nobody bats an eye and nobody notices and nobody cares. You know, how does that happen? And, you know, even though houses don't physically disappear in the real world, you know, there's so much violence that happens to certain communities. There's so much erasure that happens and nobody bats an eye. So I was using the disappearing houses to, you know, to explore, you know, those real world, um, real world issues of, you know, communities that are completely disregarded where mm -hmm. an entire neighborhood could disappear and nobody cares mm -hmm. where, where they went to and how this is happening. Right. And I think when I was, when I, when I read that book, I'm like, I've never read a story that talks about these heavy stuff or these like, you know, topics in this form. I'm like, nobody had made a house disappear. Cause every, like, you know, we all have that, you know, you know, it's a typical neighborhood where you have those, you know, we call it in the Philippines, chismosa, you know, with the, with the people that like, like to gossip, like their breakfast is a little bit of gossip and coffee. Yep. <laughs> and they know about who, who came home late, who is cheating mm -hmm. on what, exactly. and who, who is pregnant again. They know everybody. And then I'm like, oh my God, this you know, like just the beginning of the story. And you know, like then there's always like these like protagonists that wanna wanna change that what's happening around them, you know, just wanna get out from there. And then it's so much layer in this story. Um, that I really, really was like, dang, she did that. <laughs> But we love the busy body aunties, though. Yes. No, no. <laughs> Always in your business. <laughs> a, a community would not survive without them. There would be no spice in mm. in the community without them. Um, yeah. but like, um, what I guess just a follow up question. Um, you know, you mentioned this story. Why? Why was that like the title of the book? Why was yeah. that? You know, why was that the? I guess you know the like the forebear of like you know this torture I'm like yes I'm gonna present you this this book yeah I think one thing I noticed when I was you know curating the collection is that there are a lot of people speaking from beyond the grave in this collection mm -hmm. um you know lots of ancestors lots of people in I guess like a purgatory liminal space and so I think that title really captured um kind of like these these voices speaking from uh beyond the grave uh and actually the original title of the collection was swimming with crocodiles which is one of the story it's now a realist story in the collection um and then ultimately uh we went with drinking from graveyard wells that's such a good title yes that's such a good title <laughs> <laughs> Um, so recently I, I was watching an interview with writer uh, Jason Reynolds and oh, yeah. he was discussing the importance of documenting life in the written manner, like a handwritten letter. Uh, he was saying that we live in a generation now where everything is digitized 
And so there isn't going to be anything left because we're not sending each other letters. We're sending each other emails. And eventually Google will say your drive is too full. You need to delete something and poof, those letters will be gone. So when you look back on your life and what you want to leave behind in Mm -hmm. the archives of Black literature, what is one thing that you have now that you would want people to see and learn about you outside of the books that you have and will write in the years to come? Mm, oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. Um, you know, that's making me think. So I went to um, Oakland, California, uh, and they had an, um, an Octavia Butler exhibit. And so I saw her handwritten journals where um, she was like, you know, um, I- I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yeah, I'm going to do yeah. this. Uh, and then uh, at the end, it said, uh, so be it, see to it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really powerful that she was kind of making the world in this uh, in this way. Uh, and it was, you know, in her handwriting. And I love that. So, I mean, I, I have been thinking a lot about archiving and, and journaling. Um, so I think, you know, what do I want to leave behind? I think for me, it's a project like Voodoo Knots, actually, where, you know, we're bringing together all these different writers. And it came out of, um, so I co-founded with uh, Shingai, um, who's uh, a brilliant writer. Uh, uh, her, nov- her novella, uh, and this is how to stay alive, is a time travel uh, novella that uses this East African conceptualization of time, which I can spend a whole hour ranting about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she was, you know, doing her MFA at Brown, and she felt, you know, really lonely. There were not a lot of POC um and, and, you know, and Black students uh, at that, um, on that campus, and, you know, and I was here in Massachusetts, so, you know, we kind of, uh, you know, talked about what would it, would it be like to have a Black MFA, a Black workshop space, where we could just, you know, be ourselves, not have to worry about translating, you know, not have to worry about code switching or anything like that, and we're like, why don't we make it, um, and so it was born kind of like out of that loneliness uh, in our respective programs, so I think for me, that's, you know, kind of like the legacy that I want to leave behind, like a space where Black writers can come and grow and be in community with each other, you know, find writing bodies, find their their community. Um, so, yeah, I think, and I know that's not my writing, but that's like more community work, but that's, the, yeah, that's kind of like what I, you know, I want to leave behind is um, kind of like leaving the door open for more people to to come in is important for me. And I think that's a beautiful answer, especially considering everything that you have within this collection that centers around the importance of community, right? Mm-hmm. So it would only be that that's what you're like, I want to leave this sense of community because that's prevalent in what you're writing about mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and the culture in which you come from and the importance of knowing like it takes all of us in order for us to function and not trying to do everything alone and you know from that you can be able to birth all of these amazing stories Mm -hmm. um home became a theme with horns is a story that focuses on immigrants in an unknown country waiting to become citizens by going through a naturalization ceremony performed by a priest Uh, to gain citizenship one must have something removed by the priest such as a language or a family etc this story takes this notion of one gaining full access to a new country as privilege and flips it over to show the rotting core of what is truly lost in this transaction. 
will you speak more on this particular story and the role that religion plays into the stripping away of people's most prized possessions? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, with that story, I was kind of thinking about my own experiences and as well as friends and family that immigration is such a um, uh, dilapidating experience because it takes so much for you and you have to constantly, you know, prove your humanity. You have to, you know, prove that, uh, you know, uh, that you're a good worker, that you've got the right papers, that you have, you know, all the finances and everything has to be in order. And it's just so much that, you know, you're just like, okay, I'm just a human being, you know, I don't need to, you know, prove all of this stuff. So, you know, I was, you know, I was thinking of, you know, giving up so much. Um, and, you know, the religious um, aspect where this, the place where the nationalization ceremonies happen is, um, a, you know, a cross between like a DMV and a church. And it's the naturalization priests that take away, that strip away something that you love. Um, and, you know, I think about when people naturalize that you have to pledge allegiance to the new nation. And, you know, it, or you don't, you know, it almost feels like a cult yeah. <laughs> where you have to you have to renounce your old homeland and embrace the new homeland. So I was, you know, I was thinking about that, that this, it kind of feels like this religious aspect where you're you're making a pledge to this new homeland. And that pledge is almost like a spell that that binds you um, mm. to that place. So I was, you know, thinking about this pledge of allegiance, you know, as a spell that uh, strips something that you love, something that is essential, that is a part of your identity in order for you to be embraced by by this new place. Um, yeah, because I was really thinking about it from the aspect of like <clears throat> when you're talking about people coming in and thinking that they've discovered a new country, right? Mm. So you know, like in terms of like just America's history in itself of having uh, pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower and bringing this religion with them. They're trying to to run away from persecution and they want to be able to be in a place to worship how they want and then taking that same religion and imposing it in a deadly manner onto the indigenous people that lived here, right? Yeah. And one of those things... uh also brought to mind like even in my family's own personal experience of my brother-in-law's grandfather mm -hmm. uh, was given up when he was a baby to a catholic church in the bahamas mm -hmm. and uh you know he's a baby his name was byron claire but because he did not have a catholic name they switched it and gave, named him james sweeting and just having that like renaming of self of like your name is not good enough until you have this on you and what that means, not only when you're seeing it play out in terms of just renaming somebody, but telling them that they can no longer perform the, the religious rituals that they, that they brought from their own country and all of those things that you see play out in terms of the history of the foundation of a, of a, of a country. Right. And I really saw that, through this story and I was just thinking like damn like she wrote the hell out of this this one because <laughs> of your way to really stretch out this dynamic there's so many different layers because you know you could take it from just the you trying to uh be a part of another country period just a regular way and then you are taking it to the religious route and then stripping it down to you know like what is going to be physically stripped from you um mm -hmm. that will make you like you say 
almost like cult-wise become one and just accept this loss, right? And nobody who has the privilege of being a citizen from birth realizes what gets taken away from somebody until they lay it out of like, it's money, you know, it's family not being seen for many years. It's that possibility of never even seeing them ever again of what it is that you were so easily born into and I love what you did with this with this story yeah thank you and you know you know you can you lose your your language your culture your food and those are some of the things that the priest can take away from you and that's something that happens with assimilation is Mm -hmm. you know you, you you put away your recipes you put away your language in order to be embraced by this new place and you know that's an entire lineage gone of recipes that have been passed down, you know, gone uh, entirely. So, you know, I was thinking about that of, you know, what is lost when, uh, when, uh, you know, in, in immigrating. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I read that particular story, it almost kind of brought me back to when I did it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I was in my early twenties when I did it. And when you're young and kind of like, you know, kind of like living in this bubble, you know, because like it has been drilled in your head for so long that this is the goal, right? The goal is to be naturalized. The goal is to be just part of this thing. But nobody told told me like, oh, with this thing, like, I, I don't know, for some reason in my head, I thought I can be like, yeah, you know, I can be naturalized, but I can still keep myself being Filipino. And I struggled with that, I think, for the longest time because it, it almost felt like, so what like what does it mean to be now, now me? Because then when I'm here, you know, I can say that I'm American, but America doesn't think I'm American. I'm it, mm-hmm. you know? So it was a it was a very long process that at times I still struggle with. Like I we talked to like, Asian authors that made like this book called Rice and I told them it has come a long time since I can call myself Asian American Mm because when people would ask me what are you I'm like I'm Filipino you know it was it's so hard for me to say that I'm American Mm because I was I never felt like oh yeah you know because you work here and you know you always have to be good you have to make sure that the space that was given to you you actually deserve it 10 times like more than some somebody that was born here. So when I when I was reading your your story, I was like I almost thought I'm like, well shit, what did I give up? Like, you know, like it yeah. it made me go back to that moment and like made me analyze like is something that I I gave up then cuz I was young, is some is that something I can like bring back? You know, mm-hmm. it almost feels like I'm struggling to like get connected to that to that basically that you know that line that was cut because we're not allowed to right so yeah I can talk about that that story for an hour as well which goes to show that your book makes us really you know do some therapy on ourselves like it makes us work (laughs) oh yeah that story was just born out of you know like my own like frustrations and you know about the process that you know, it, it's so exhausting and you give up so much. So I just kind of spewed it all on the page, just, uh, and it was a form of therapy for myself, just 
you know, getting it all out of myself and having it on the page. And, you know, I'm so glad that, you know, reading the story for you also kind of, you know, allowed you to, you know, to process, you know, what did I give up? Um, you know, mm -hmm. I'm really glad to hear that because writing it was that for me. Yeah. Mm. And you can feel like the rage on the page because mm. I was, you know, <laughs> when, when like at the end, when the character was stuttering, you know, mm. I, I, and I'm just like, ah, <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if I could, if I could like, you know, come in into the page, like you're this person, I would have done it. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, I was just, I was just happy that it was presented to me back to me like you know bounce back to me and i can see it like almost in a you know bird's eye view mm. of what of what that really is and you know for people also to be like this is what happens to the people that you that you say you know go back to your country like we would if we could cuz we really want to but this is the other side of the story yeah. that nobody talks about yeah so um, also, your stories have integrated concepts of time. So, you know, mm -hmm. since I I love sci-fi, I love the fantastical. Um, you know, you explained a concept of time here. You know, you said that one of which is that there is no future, but only mm -hmm. the now and the past. Um, so we were we were just curious and like you know how does the concept of time kind of like pairs up with you know the problem that is capitalism, you know, that even in death, some of these people, you know, in their stories are still paying off their debts, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, I talked about uh, Shingai's novella, Shingai Kagunda's novella, and this is how to stay alive. Um, and her novella is, uh, you know, in conversation with uh, that story uh, about time. Uh, so her novella uses this East African conceptual conceptualization of time. That time is uh, moving backwards and not forwards. So as we age, we're moving towards the past, you know, because, you know, we're, we're, we're all going to die. So you're moving towards, uh, you know, towards a past and not a future. So you only have the present moment uh, and the past. And so I was so fascinated by that conceptualization of time um, that, you know, I, I used it to think about what are their, um, in that story, what are the um, kind of like the female liberation war heroes um, that have been erased from, from history and what would it look like for one of their descendants to go back to time, to use this conceptualization of time to go back and kind of bring them back uh, into memory because one of the key uh, aspects of that conceptualization of time is that um, you only truly die is when uh, everybody who knows you uh, has passed away. So there's nobody to to remember you. There's no one with uh, with the memories to to remember you. So I was thinking a lot about about memory and about um, you know all the you know the black women that have contributed so much and they're not remembered in history. Their their contributions are not written down. So what does it mean to kind of use memory to, you know, to bring it back and to kind of resurrect that ancestor um, in the present? So uh, with that story, I was kind of, you know, thinking about that. And, you know, and Shingai is a character in uh, in that story. Um, she kind of shows up to guide the the um, to guide the character um, towards figuring out how to time travel. So, you know, through my conversations with Shingai, through reading her work, um, and that, you know, I really recommend that novella and this is how to stay alive. 
um, a lot. And that's kind of like what inspired uh, my uh, my own thinking about about time. Uh, and I, I will actually um, be in conversation with her tomorrow at uh, the, the reading that's happening at the book launch. So I'm excited to talk about time uh, with her. She's, you know, very, very, uh, very, very brilliant and has very interesting things to say about time. <laughs> yeah, I think that because that concept, like we before we talked about this earlier, we first saw it like in this movie called Coco. Um, it's this Disney movie where um, a little boy goes to the un- like to um, the the world of the dead, and so mm. you know he meets like these two characters where nobody kind of remembers, nobody offers to their like ofrenda, which is nobody remembers them on the day of the dead, and one mm. of the characters actually like you know vaporized in front of them because they said yeah when nobody remembers you when nobody puts offerings on your ofrenda and remembers you on the day of the dead you go into this other place so that was the first time that I've known about that and then read you know reading the story I'm like oh it's not only in one culture that it's found but also in another so you know there's this kind of like continuum of like you know I don't know concepts and traditions that might not be particular to just one space Mm -hmm. I it's funny to me sometimes when I'm reading a story and then there's different things that I might find like on social media or something in the news that relate to what it is that I'm reading. And recently there was a video of uh, Bosama St. John. She's an entrepreneur. Uh, Now she just released her own memoir and her husband had passed away um suddenly from a from a horrible illness and they had a child together and she was talking about what grief is and so she says a lot of the times that when you're when you are thinking about death and dying and grief that a lot of people are thinking that you are grieving the person of the past like you know like I won't get to you know um have to remember this moment anymore you know like share this moment with this person but she said it's more so of thinking about what was in the future of like the what could have been with that person. You know, like you those memories. She's like, I have a daughter who will never get to know her father and not share those moments of, you know, like he's not walking her down the aisle or seeing her off to prom or whatever. And so like seeing how time played in that aspect of what grief is in terms of also dealing with the grief that you see a lot of those characters deal with in this in this story. I really felt like, you you know, your your play on um, the understanding of how time can work within this universe and how some people might see it uh, to really make someone sit down and just make take notes on like where they are in their own personal walk in life and figure out like what they want to do while they're in the now and how they want that legacy to be you know in the in the future or or if for their past or their past Mm -hmm. um you brought up the voodoo knots a a few times throughout this conversation so people have a a good understanding of what it is that you created with these wonderful writers i'm just curious um i want to know how did this community not only not that how it formed but how did you all get to the writing an anthology together it's Mm -hmm. called reliving mythology and it came out i think what in this past november 
Yeah, last year. Yeah, last year. Yeah, talk to us about that book, that collection. How long did it take? Whose idea was it? The the whole the whole nine. Yeah, um, you know, so you know, Voodoo Knots, the organization, it you know started as uh, a brainchild of me and uh, Shingai, um, and then we brought on other writers. So we have two other co-founders. Uh, so that's UHD Hunter, who's a middle grade uh, author. Um, his book Futureland is an Afrofuturist, uh, lovely book that I think if you have a little niece or nephew, like. You need to <laughs> get that book out for them, um, as well as uh, LP Kindred, who's also a brilliant writer. So um, so it's kind of like a four person uh, show. And so, you know, we've always wanted to do an anthology of each class of, uh, of uh, each cohort of fellows. So each year we have 25 uh, fellows. Um, and so we, you know, worked to, you know, curate these pieces from the fellows, as well as solicit some other stories from uh, more established writers, uh, and kind of, kind of curate, uh, you know, their work. And for a lot of these writers, um, it was their first published work. So it was so kind of beautiful to see that, uh, to see their work uh, in print. So our goal, our long-term goal was to have um, an anthology for each class of fellows. So that was the class of 2020 for that anthology. And the next one would be class of 2021, the class of 2022, hopefully, and then uh, 2023 when we uh, when we have the summer fellowship this year. So mm -hmm. it's just a collected work of, you know, each year's, you know, you know, black writers doing the thing, working with mythology. So uh, I mean, I'm excited to see what, you know, the next anthology would look like with our class of 2021 fellows contributing to that. <laughs> Well, that was a wonderful find for me. I, I got to get our hands on that book. I, I want to be able to read not only your stories, but everyone else's uh, contribution to that anthology. Because, um, yeah, if you are writing like this, I can only imagine <laughs> the extent of what is within that book. So now we are at the point of our conversation. I feel like you probably are, are ready to answer. I feel it in my, in my spirit. Um, we would like to know, you got two choices, either your top five favorite books of all time uh, or the top five things that you are really excited about that you want people to know. It could be your friend's book. It could be a movie, your album you just listened to, a tea that you just drank, whatever. We want to we know what it is that is like in your mind right now. Yeah. Can I do a mix of match of both? Sure. Yes. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. So uh top books, uh Chintu by Jennifer Makumbi. That book changed my life. Um Jennifer Makumbi is a Ugandan author. So this magical realist family saga that starts off in pre-colonial uh Uganda, um, and then to the modern world where this curse has been affecting this family for generations, even you know, before colonization happened. Um, so how each generation deals with this curse. Uh, and it's really, really beautiful prose. Just, you know, that book changed my life, <laughs> basically. So I think she deserves more hype. And, you know, the reason why I really love that book as well is that uh, she tried to get it published in uh, the UK and the US as well. And they say that her book was too African to be publishable. And so she took her book to a Kenyan uh, publisher and it was published in Kenya. And then it became very successful. And that's when uh, American and European publishers were like, oh, now we want to republish it in the U.S. But before it had been 
too African to publishable. So I always look at that book as inspiration that, yes, I want to write a book that's too African to yes. be publishable. That doesn't, you know, try to translate. That doesn't, you know, try mm -hmm. to code switch. It's just what it is. And, it you know, it makes people uncomfortable. And, and you know, she did that. So that that's one book that uh, I really love. Uh, some things that I, I guess I'm looking forward to, you know, I keep mentioning Shingai's novella and This Is How to Stay Alive. That's definitely one. She's working on a novel now, so always look out for her work. It's uh, really brilliant. Um, I mentioned use uh, UHD Hunter's uh, middle grade Afrofuturist book. It's called uh, Futureland. Um, it's about a, a, a theme park um, that uh, it's kind of like, um, uh, what's that, Westworld? So you have this mm. traveling theme park that's owned by a Black family. And so it's made its stop to Atlanta. So it flies to every city. Uh, and so in, in the book, it's it has made its stop in Atlanta. And, you know, really fascinating things are going on. And, you know, I won't spoil it, but, you know, it's 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 a good middle grade for, uh, you know, your nieces, nephews, even adults. I loved it, you know, as an adult reading it. Uh, so it was definitely good to see that Afrofuturism, you know, happening there in the middle grade space. Uh, what else am I excited about? I'm excited about the next Voodoo Knots. Uh, you know, to see another class of fellows, uh, to maybe work on another anthology, uh, co-edit uh, an anthology in the future. Um, what TV shows have I been watching? Um, that's coming out. I think there's a new um, uh, Afro-surrealist social horror coming out uh, that's made by the creators of Atlanta. Oh, Swarm. Yes, well, yes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. gonna be on on Amazon Prime, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that. I'm gonna have my popcorn every time something you know psychological thriller Afro surrealist comes out. I have to, <laughs> I have to watch it. So yeah, that's another thing that I'm looking forward to. Well, there you go. That's a solid list right there. Yes. See this <laughs> this this um sci-fi stuff. I can. I can always read them, but it scares me when I watch it. So, yeah. Because you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yee. Yeah. yeah. I watched Get Out two years after it came out because I was too scared. So I was really late to the game. <laughs> she, she forced me to watch it. I'm like, can, is there a transcript? Can we just read it? I can read. But please don't, don't make me, because it, uh, it was hard to watch. It's yeah. and I think it's the music that gets me. Uh, yeah, the music makes the movie. <laughs> yes, I think you know because if it was just kind of like plain, I'm like, okay, I can get through this. But the music, man, yeah, with the me. jump scares. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I I do want to talk to you about before we let you go is your the one story that dealt with the young woman who was just trying to basically find her find her way in 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 this country and send you know send money and things back to her family and she was kind of like blessed with this a little bit of luck yes but yes. It, it turned to be a bad thing for her yes. and um and and it reminded me because there's something that happens at the end of the story I don't want to spoil it but it basically it reminded me of a, a video that I had seen TikTok instagram i don't know but it was like this young man i think something either he gets hit by a car or whatever he instantly goes to heaven and one of his ancestors comes to greet him in heaven and say all right welcome you're an ancestor now he's like what how am i an ancestor 
He's like, I'm not old. And he says, ancestors mean dead. So yeah. come on. Now it's time <laughs> to go do work. And he's like, I got to do work too. So when I read that part of your story, I was like, ah, yeah, I can definitely see how this video can go with this, this particular uh, part of the story of like that struggle that no, that scared me. That story scared me because it's like, you know, the overseas Filipino workers that would just send money. And then people think they have like this pot of gold that they're sitting on yeah. when they, when they go back to the Philippines, people think that, you know, that they're rich, yeah. that they're rich, that they can give out dollars or euros or whatever they're, they're, you know, using that money for. And then also when they kind of like, you know, some, sometimes there's some abuses that happens overseas and like mm. they get killed or they abuse and they die. Mm. And I'm like, that's where my mind went to. And then I'm like, oh no, what happens when they, wherever they go, you know, like to the afterlife or, you know, as ancestors. And I'm like, please tell me, please tell me it's different. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that messed me up. I'm not going to lie to you. And I'm just like, uh... I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay. But it's just kind of just made me like, you know what? I think it's time to like it's it's time to move, do something else a little bit. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, but I was thinking a lot of that expression, like ancestors working full time. Cause like usually when something happens, uh something good happens for somebody, you say, Oh, they're uh, you know, their ancestors are working full time to, you know, make sure that something good happens to them. So I was thinking about that. I was like, okay, what if the afterlife is just another version of the world that we have? It's another capitalist systems where the ancestors have to be working full time in factories to allow you to have good fortune, you know, in in your life. What does that mean that, you know, when you die, it's not resting in peace. It's just another more work and more. <laughs> the I don't know, I don't know if I make it make sense. <laughs> ah. I'm sorry. No, don't be sorry, because this is this is the kind of reaction. If people don't have this reaction, that's when I'm gonna be mad. Because I'm like, see what we gotta go through. But it also <laughs> made me think about like how the role of religion again in terms of like you know, just trying to make it be it on this plane or the heavenly plane or wherever you are and you know like with black people and religion in america you've just been taught like you know we toil down here but we'll have our crown when we when we reach heaven right and then you're just like you read a story like that and you're like oh jesus <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> what if there's no rest like right right <laughs> well Yvette, we would love to just like kidnap you and have you here and just like talk to you all night long, but we don't want to do that because we know you have a big day tomorrow. Yes. Congratulations on your upcoming release. We hope that you have a wonderful day. Just remember to just pause, breathe it in, look around and just think about your baby is out in the world. And now soon you're going to have everybody asking you, when does the next one come so <laughs> congratulations congratulations do a fit check you know ah, yeah. post that post that pic on instagram uh, Let us no, know. thank you for guessing me out thank you <laughs> yeah we we wish we could we could be you know in that same space where you would do this live but we're very happy that you came on to the show the night before of your release you could have been doing a million other things 
but you know it's a great pleasure to talk to an author that that kind of really gets it that gets us yeah and you know the 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 work that we try to do around here so yeah uh, yeah thank you and you are doing you know lovely work to platform you know BIPOC authors and you know I appreciate that and I love doing interviews um with you know black and brown uh creators because like we can just have a natural conversation where you're asking really astute questions and I appreciate that you know not very basic one-on-one questions like oh what is Zimbabwe oh, you know whatever <laughs> I really really appreciate that you know how you do your research and like the conversation is just uh you know very enriching for me as well so you know thank you for the work that you do uh, thank you thank you and again, you rest easy. You have a, a wonderful uh, day tomorrow and all the days to come. All right. Thank you so much. You're have welcome. Take care. Take care. This is so lovely. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Good night. We hope you enjoyed our show. Our show has been produced and edited by Preston Long. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. Our theme song you've been nodding your head to is by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Follow us on Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Bye! Bye.